Welcome to the BMJ's podcast on decolonizing health and medicine. I'm Jocelyn Clark, the journal's international editor, and I've come to the BMJ with a real passion and commitment to decolonial and equitable practices in publishing and editing. This podcast is part of a larger project at the BMJ to contribute to debates and progress towards decolonizing institutions and knowledge systems in health and medicine. We've been listening to and learning from experts and colleagues around the world, and they tell us that present inequities and lack of progress in health are linked to a failure to confront colonial pasts. We invite you to listen to these conversations with these experts, and we welcome your feedback. This is the third episode in our podcast series where we're navigating through the complexities of decolonizing health. The decolonizing movement isn't the only wind of change. The feminist movement in health has been challenging the way in which entrenched power, conferred by gender, has negatively affected women. But how have these two progressive forces interacted, and has it always been to the benefit of all? I'm Navjoit Lada, clinical editor at the BMJ, and as this series unfolds, we hope to explore how ideas and structures first established in colonial times have permeated medicine, science, global health, and our everyday clinical practice. Intersectionality, like decolonization, has perhaps become a bit of a buzzword, but really understanding the interactions of gender, ethnicity, sexuality is the key thing to ensuring that no groups are left behind. And to discuss that today, I'm joined by an amazing panel who've been working right at that intersection. Let's meet them. Sarah, could I get you to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sarah Hawkes. I'm, uh, I've, I've got two hats. Um, one hat uh, is that I'm Professor of Global Public Health at University College London. And my other hat is that I'm co-director of a gender equality initiative um, called Global Health 5050. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. And Asha. Hi, pleasure to be here. I'm Asha George. I'm a professor and research chair at the School of Public Health at the University of the Western Cape here in South Africa. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, Raywin. Um, Right, Uh, I'm Raywin Connell. Um, I'm now Professor Emerita at the University of Sydney and a life member of the union. I was a university professor at University of Sydney. It was my last appointment. I'm a sociologist. Uh, I've done research on class, education, gender, masculinities, intellectuals, sexuality, and bits of health sort of woven through that, I guess, is my connection with the, the health world. Brilliant. Well, thank you all so much for joining us and for spanning time zones to um, be with us here as well. So we're we're absolutely thrilled um, and really looking forward to getting into this discussion with you where we're kind of looking at the uh, connections between the work that you do and and this theme that we're focusing on on the podcast of uh, decolonization. Um, 
And just to start with, I mean, you're all leading scholars in gender studies and health. And I just wanted to start off by asking you, what what does decolonization um, mean to you and your work? Uh, Raywin, perhaps I could come to you first with that question. Mm, well, I guess I would start where, where I began, which was doing research in these various areas that I, I mentioned. I gradually learnt, and I guess it sort of began to crystallise for me really in the 1980s, that all of these fields I was working in were embedded in a global system of, of some sort, which in turn was connected with the history of empire. So Australia is a settler colonial country in the far south of the world, uh, a rich uh, post-colonial country, I suppose you could, you could call it, uh, but nevertheless very marginal to the, you know, centres of, of academic work and, and uh, the research worlds I, I was working in. And it took me a while to, to sort of come to awareness of this and to, to think that there were actually problems in, in, in this uh, and, and we might think about it in other ways than backwardness or dependence or marginality. Uh, and then I guess I was particularly cued by encountering the work of Pauline Muntanji, a philosopher from West Africa, a fascinating guy who'd done a famous critique of the colonialist notion of African philosophy and then, then thought through something about the, in the contemporary academic and, and research world, the divisions of labour and the hierarchies of authority that existed on a global scale. Uh, so that, I guess, is, is how I got into the, the, the pathway of getting into thinking about coloniality, uh, decolonization in the realm of knowledge, as well as in the world of, of politics and, and economics. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, Anasha, if I could ask you, how has um, decolonization been operationalized, if you like, in your research, um, you know, maybe the way you approach it, the, the methodologies that you do, um, how you approach inclusivity? Sure. Uh, I think it's about an intentionality of doing things differently um, and, and trying to broaden um, spaces for inclusion. So I had the huge privilege of working with UNU, United Nations University, in convening a research agenda setting process for gender and COVID-19, which I'm really delighted the BMJ has been partnered with us in, in doing that. And we have um, a supplement that's uh, just been released. But I think what was uh, behind that was an intentionality of how do we change the dynamics of how global health um, initiatives are um, carried forward. So right from the beginning, it was anchoring it and being very intentional of one, being open to participation. And so it, it was a very process intensive uh, uh, collaboration, but it was doing open calls for who wanted to join and lead and then being very intentional in looking at who responded and reaching out. Um, so that it was very much balanced in terms of giving opportunity to people who were earlier in their careers, uh, but being very intentional in making sure that those from LMIC settings or different regions 
were part of the dialogue and were in a leadership position. And at every point, the, the biases of global health kept coming back to us. So for instance, we did an open call. We had, uh, we in two ways, we also used our networks to really encourage those, you know, at one point I make a joke out of it, but it was a competition between India and Uganda to sign up as many colleagues to participate in the call. You know, we, we use data as a way of encouraging because once you get people in the room, that are not uh, that are look like themselves. More people come on board. Um, if the first ten participants are people from high income countries, it it is much harder to get other voices in the room because you've mm-hmm. already set the tone. Um, if the first ten participants are all white people, it's very hard to get um, other people of color in the room and to really input in the agenda. So being very mm-hmm. intentional right from the beginning of who was involved and how in a very visible way, changing the dynamics of who was involved. And at every point, so for instance, sometimes we've put out calls and the only people who responded initially were white women based in high income countries. Mm-hmm. And so for the team to take a pause and realize we have to do something differently. It's not excluding those experts but who else do we have to get round the table? And realizing that even if you're trying to be open and inclusive, the same people who come put their hands up first are not the only voices that need to be there. And putting mm-hmm. in the extra time to um, um, to curate a space where other voices are involved. Mm-hmm. The, the second way I think that is really important is sometimes to step out of the room. So I get invited all the time. I'm very conscious I'm an Indian citizen working in Africa. And the lack of African voices is seriously problematic. And so at every point when Jocelyn invited me to be part of this, I also nominated other African voices. And, I, and many times I've stepped down and I've, I've said, thank you very much, but this is not a, I don't represent, there are other people who need to be part of the conversation. And at different points, um, and I, you know, Sarah Hawks and Pascal led the Lancet Commission on Gender and Health. And I, I just, it's gender and health is a passion of mine, but I recommended three other people who don't have the same global visibility. And I think that's really important as well. Some of us are very privileged, but the world is not going to change if they hear more from me or um, other experts. But really, we need to broaden and bring in and give a boost for others who are on the margins and are fight multiple barriers of exclusion to be recognized. And particularly for Africa, it is really problematic, the politics of knowledge production, in which someone who might be, you know, quite senior, often get displaced for someone very junior from a high income institution in being the expert of their own country. Yeah. And that, I think that seeding of space as well is something that is is coming up that, you know, we, we can't have these calls without it's recognizing that there is, um, you know, that the existing power dynamics don't really allow for that to, to happen. Um, and I just want to thank you, Asher, as well, for those recommendations um, that you and referrals of people to include in the in the series. And I believe from Jocelyn, we, we have included those recommendations. So thank you. Um, and 
Sarah, coming to you uh, as well, do you do you have anything you want to add on on your work and how um, decolonization has, is is part of that and and what methods you've used or what approaches you've taken? Sure, thanks, Navjoit. Um, I think, to be honest, I would find it very hard to distinguish between what might be classed as a um, decolonizing or anti-colonial approach to methodology and process um, and what I would otherwise class as a feminist approach to methodology and process. So, you know, questions of participation, questions of voice, questions of representation um, are very, very clearly part of um, taking a feminist approach to to the work that that, that we do. Um, so, I, I I'll I'll reflect on on two. Um, I'll reflect on a couple of things that that, that I work on. So Asha has has mentioned um, a Lancet commission on gender and global health, um, and thank you, Asha, for for the recommendations. Um, and um, and Raywin, uh, you know, I'm really privileged to 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 work with Raywin um, on that commission. And I would say that what we've done in the commission, what we've intended to do is is take an approach that that situates gender beyond um, current discourse around current pervasive discourse around identity, important as as discussions on identity are, and look at the deeper structural, social, political, legal constructs of what gender means and how that cannot be separated from understanding the role of colonialism, the role of capitalism, the role of neoliberalism. So in other words, you know, is that a decolonial approach or a feminist approach? I, 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 am not sure. I'd want to bet on on. I, I wouldn't want to take a bet on on, on uh, um, coming down on on either side of of what could appear to be a divide, but I think isn't a divide. That 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 there is that commonality of of approach that is about understanding systems and structures and changing systems and structures. And I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to, to, to questions of representation and participation, which I think are the sort of are the outcome of those, those processes that are kind of the, the visibility of, of, of um, seeing power imbalances in our everyday world. And that, to some extent, leads me to, to, to talk about... Um, Another piece of uh, the the other hat I wear, which is Global Health Fifty Fifty, which is is an accountability mechanism, and I'm I'm very happy to to talk at length about what what it means to to hold systems to account for their commitments to 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 shifting um, power um, uh, to to equalizing power the the, the distribution of power, but. What we do in Global Health 5050 is simply from the outside look at essentially questions such as who runs the global health system. So, for example, when we looked at um, the 2000 members, uh, 2000 board members um, of 
global health organizations. So the, 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 the people who are actually sitting in, in board seat places, um, the, the gender and nationality of those 2,000 people, we discovered that only 15 were women from low-income countries, whereas about 45% were Americans, another 10% are people from the UK, etc. Now, when you put that into a very simple data point, that becomes extraordinarily powerful. The challenge, and again, I think we'll move on to this, is how do you get people to move beyond the data of representation to think about the systems of oppression and inequality and changing those. Raywin, um, perhaps you have some thoughts on the way in which that move away from representation to systems of oppression is being looked at through this feminist lens? Well, I, I have less of the hands-on um, uh, experience with, with the global health uh, world uh, than Asha and Sarah do. Um, but... <coughs> I, I see similar kinds of issues in the in the research side uh, of things, uh, where you know if we're, if we're thinking of 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 the whole process as one of trying to democratize knowledge on a global scale, one of the big problems and and often not uh, well recognized is the huge inequalities of resources for research. Um, in the majority world, you know, compared with the, the rich countries of the global north, um, and also inequalities of authority, so that in um, in gender studies uh, broadly, for instance, you know, for the last generation, uh, a great deal of authority has gone to deconstructionist. Um, uh, a theory, um, uh, studies of, of discourse and identity and so forth, which have become, you know, central to, to much gender studies in the global north for, for perfectly good reasons. And there's a great deal of interest in that. But on a global scale, given the authority of global north institutions in the health world and, of course, in the university world, if that is what is the central understanding of what gender is about, um, we can get a global circulation of ideas that don't necessarily work very well or mm. are not terribly helpful in other parts of the world, I mean, such as the term LGBT, uh, you know, which was invented for a particular political situation in the United States at the end of the 90s, worked quite well there, had political effects. But then, you know, it got globalised through the human rights uh, uh, networks um, and so forth, and and doesn't necessarily match um, the you know issues faced by trans groups or um, you know sexual minorities, to use another euphemism, in other parts of the world may not speak to their uh, central issues at all. Um, so it seems to be important. I'm mean, thinking what to do about all of this. All of this. Um, one of the things is to, to push more and more, uh, gender research to take account of the, uh, of the issues that are being identified by feminist researchers in the global south. Um, 
the, the practical problems, which may be a long way from the way gender theory works in, in, in most global north institutions, practical problems about land, for instance, uh, women's land rights, land use, access to forests, um, to, to, to land ownership or, or use rights. Um, and, um, that, that's almost absent as, a, as an issue in gender theory in the global north, but it's a huge practical issue. Uh, you know, uh, around, you know, much of the world. Um, or, you know, one time I was in Mexico and talking to, to feminist colleagues there and, and asked them, you know, what, what is really the hierarchy of issues of feminists in Mexico? And uh, number one, no question, around the room was violence, femicide. Uh, now, that isn't a central issue. I mean, it's a practical concern of feminism in the global north, but it's not a big theoretical question. Uh, and it's a health question, of course. Uh, violence and has many health downstreams, quite apart from the fact people get killed. Um, or gender segregation, um, you know, which is not necessarily a, a number one issue in in the global health, but in parts of uh, of the post-colonial world, it certainly is. And it's a health issue too, in terms of access to, to health services, uh, access to you know, the material uh, resources you need for maintaining good health. So there's, there's lots of practical work to, to be done. I think in the academic and research world, as well as at the coalface of policy making and, and service delivery. So to me, I mean, when, when I think of decolonization, I don't actually use that word very often. Um, but, but when I am thinking in those terms, the whole thing really seems to me is very strongly act, you know, um, a practical set of practical issues. And it's not pie in the sky. It's not just rhetoric. It's not just a way of, you know, dissing the global north, uh, although a good deal of that does go on, of course. Um, but the, the core of it is a whole set of practical issues about inequality, oppression, violence, exploitation, mm -hmm. uh, and so forth in, in gender relations and race and, and, uh, and class and caste, um, that are in, always interwoven with them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot to do. Um, yeah, um, but but also a lot that can be done. Yeah. So we've been focusing on how well feminist academic work has incorporated the needs of the decolonizing movement in its practices. But how about the way in which the decolonizing movement is aware of the needs to maintain thinking about gender? Do you think the movement adequately incorporates gender justice and feminist perspectives? I mean, if I could answer candidly, so I will. <laughs> yes, please. Um, I think the answer to that is probably no. Um, and, and you know, I've got a, this would be my very biased sample size of, of, you know, what I'm exposed to. So it may be that there's a whole uh, plethora of discourse and discussion and papers written about the links between feminism and decolonization within global health. But I haven't 
seen that it, 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 I mean that you know the, there's there's the the odd paper that occasionally comes across my my um, paper feed but but otherwise I would say no and and I think that that is a loss and a detriment to both movements and I am seeing them as two separate movements at the moment I think that there are you know, clear, um, there are clear individual examples of champions who manage to combine those two movements. You've got Asha on the panel, you know, she's a brilliant example of of somebody who can um, both in a disciplinary sense and in an action sense combine the agendas of decolonization and feminism. But I'm not sure that within global health that I, I don't see that as being the norm. Um, I think they're, they're very much presented as two separate agendas, sadly. Asha, do you want to come in on that? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to build on that. Thanks so much, Sarah. I think one, global health is largely ahistorical. Um, you know, it's, it is actually global health as it functions today is really and there are analysts who look at what does glo- what how global health is um, uh, configured, global health governance, and Sarah, through Global Health 5050, has really tried to work on accountability. But it's fairly a recent phenomenon, and there's not enough critique, actually. Um, uh, decolonization has almost co-opted real critique. <laughs> Uh, of of global um, global health today, and it it's provided I think a very valuable outlet for frustration of how global health currently functions. But my sense is that, and I'm saying this without it's hard to keep up. I mean, I think in the last three years, it's phenomenal how decolonization has caught on, and everybody has a perspective on it, reams have been written, and a lot of new people have come up. And that, I think that is really valuable. Um, so one is to just recognize um, how recent and contemporary it is, but very few, with the exception of Shea or others, are really drawing from a deeper link to other disciplines or histories. Um, two, there is a very, I think, uh, ways in which decolonization and feminism are linked. I mean, one of my inspirations is the work of um, Chandra Mohanty and her work a long time ago called Under Western Eyes and was a very strong critique of feminism from a Southern perspective and making the claim, which still rings true today, that a lot of work in gender and health is hijacked by not really looking more deeply at issues of intersectionality, that patriarchy is deeply problematic, but patriarchy doesn't function in an, in a space of its own. It's within a broader political economy, and we can't separate the two. The third point I wanted to make is, if you really look at political economy, decolonization is part of a larger um, power play at a global level. That has always been there. Um, But gender is a deep part of that in the sense that I think too often people who work in gender are blind to these broader political economy dynamics and are not cognizant of these these broader political um, challenges 
and are blind to that, which is really problematic because the pushback on gender is often said is it uses gender as the battlefield um, to push back against high income countries. And unless we understand um, that, uh, we're never going to advance on gender. To to respond um, to something that, that Asha um, said, and that that's the 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 issue of the the pushback against gender um the what what's being termed the anti-gender movement that we are seeing you know there there have been waves of the anti-gender movement probably well certainly for as long as the 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 world has been using the word gender um which which in global health terms is is much shorter than you think it is <laughs> or the, i would just 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 like to say so you know the global health world has only been using the word gender really since the beginning of the 1990s although obviously gender inequalities have existed for time immemorial, it's a relatively new idea, a new concept within the discourse of, of global health. And I think there's a danger that that what we're seeing now in the anti-gender movements, by which I mean the the well-funded opposition to um to to gender equality, meaning, for example, women's reproductive autonomy women allowed to make decisions over their own bodies, as well as the pushback on, sorry, Ray Wynn, but I'm going to say LGBT rights, because I, th- I think I'm imagining that people listening to the podcast would, would understand that collapsed terminology. And what's interesting to see about the anti-gender movement is how they are using the language of anti-imperialism. So they are using discourse around pushing back against the hegemonic West, literally talking about the anti-imperial, the, the imperialism of gender equality and um, LGBTQ rights as being something that is not culturally appropriate to, um, to certainly, you know, to, to many countries that have, uh, where we've seen vast um, amounts of, of action and money being poured into um, countries of sub-Saharan Africa, for example. So I think that that you know that it becomes another reason why the gender field and the what what's been termed the decolonization field really need to talk to mm. each other much more closely, is because the language which has always been problematic in uh, certainly in the gender field in, in certainly in international fora the use of gender terminology has always been contested um, within UN settings, for example, that to now have anti-colonial, anti-imperialist language being associated with gender progressive movements is something that we need to battle together, not separately. Mm. And if I can jump in, I I couldn't agree more. And this is this issue... um, has has been there for a long time. Um, those who have negotiated the Beijing and Cairo um, um, agreements were facing this dynamic right from the start. And those who have been at the forefront of negotiating government commitments have always had to deal with this dynamic of um, certain countries using decolonization 
as a way to push back on gender. I think now the what is different is the level of funding those movements have gotten and the professionalization of those movements and how they're using human rights. They're using our language to fight against us. So they use, you know, the rights of the family. There's many, you know, they're fighting for freedom. They're fighting, they've monopolized language that usually uh, progressive groups use. And they're much better funded than before. And they are sort of... Um, uh, uh, we are not, uh, what Sarah said, we are not, um, we need to bring these, uh, more awareness of this together. At the same time, there's a huge amount of funding on gender and health, you know, but I, I feel like a lot of people who work in gender are actually not aware of these dynamics. They're not being political enough. They're still operating as gender, as a technical field, which it is. There is an expertise around gender that's very important. But you can't work on gender and health in today's world and not be aware of these broader political dynamics, which have always existed um, um, for those who were negotiating treaties, but are now uh, operating on a much larger scale. And we do need to bring the two worlds together. Thank you. Thank you. And and just to be clear, this anti-gender um, campaigning, I, I don't know if that's the right word that you're talking about, is that is that specifically to do with things like reproductive rights and um, sexuality, th those kind of issues? It's a whole, I, I, Sarah, do you, I mean, it's a whole range of, you know, of rights of the family, their groups being funded, European groups, it's the, you, you know, it's easy for us to point against the US. And the US fundamentalist groups have always been infiltrating Latin America. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, but now it's much more than that. It's no longer right. just the Vatican and the uh, and the fundamentalists from the US. There's also right. Russia. And there are conservative groups in Europe, not just Russia, that are funding this campaign that are working, you know, that are have their own vision of what the family should be. Um, and it is so it yes, they're Uganda is the most visible um, recent activity, mm -hmm. but it goes much further than that. Sex, sexual education for adolescents, um, you know, sexual and reproductive rights for women, but also issues around like, how do you recognize, you know, child abuse? It, it's a much, it's quite a large agenda that fundamentally is against gender inequality. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe Sarah or Raywin would like to step in. No, I think that's very accurate, uh, what you've been saying. Um, I've been conscious of the, uh, the change in uh, tone and intensity uh, of this kind of politics um, in the la even in the last 10 years. Uh, it's taken a qualitative leap ahead. Uh, it's had support from very high levels in, in the Vatican, as you will know. Um, one of the things that's changed is that it's become part of the electoral strategy of some radicalised right-wing parties, such as the Republican Party in the United States, some European right-wing parties too. And in this case, I think we're dealing with something rather different from 
you know, a, a bunch of, of, you know, authoritarian extremists who, who will never be shifted. We're also dealing with, uh, you know, professional politicians who make a very cynical decision. Look, this is a new mobilizing uh, tool, if you like, along with racism, nationalism, and the good old, you know, um, uh, standbys of, of the scoundrel. Um, but this is a tool that can mobilize the base, get out the vote, uh, create a grassroots movement that will then lever right-wing politicians into power. Um, and, and so far, you know, that, um, that strategy, I don't, I don't think it's actually accounted for big, you know, shifts in vote, in the vote. It does lose votes as well as gain them. But it's being pursued now with some intensity by right-wing parties in, in different countries. It was tried on by the right-wing parties in Australia just a few years ago who tried to get up a, um, a referendum to ban gay marriage, and they lost, uh, interestingly. Um, and it is also worth remembering that, uh, or, or recognising that that new uh, authoritarian populism, which I suppose is, is one way of describing that kind of politics, has actually suffered a number of setbacks uh, in elections in, in uh, various countries, as well as gaining much more power than it had before. So these are contestable developments, but they're important and, mm. and they're dangerous, frankly. Uh, yeah. to, to very large numbers of people, not just the small minorities that, uh, that for instance, the, the anti-trans moves uh, are, are targeting, but there are much larger implications too. Sarah. Yeah, thanks, um, Raywin. I mean, I mean, you've you've beautifully described the the links between the um, Asher described the the funding streams, and 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 we know that there's there's money coming certainly from the American evangelical movements, but as as Asher said, from from Europe and from Russia too. Um, and as, as Raywin has described, you know, th this is very much linked to nationalist politics um, across Eastern Europe, for example. We're, we're seeing, you know, what's happening in Poland, what's happening in Hungary. We're, we're seeing a, a real pushback on, on gender um, or the language of, of gender. But beyond what's happening at the level of, of nation states, we're also seeing these fights very very clearly um, happening in the international fora. Uh, Asher described um, what happened uh, in the in the 90s um, in the lead up to, if you like, the big um, rights-based uh, feminist um, movements uh, that, that were... Um, inputting into the Cairo agreement and 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 the the Beijing agreements um and uh, I mean go, going right back to your first question for for me 
um, you know, starting to look at questions of, of gender in relation to, to health really happened around the mid 90s. And, and I, in my own work, drew very, very much on the work of, of the, the dawn feminist movement and um, or people like Sonia Correa. And I would really encourage people to look at Sonia Correa's work. Um, and see how much of it is being replicated again today, because what she describes is the fight over language um, in the lead up to, to to Cairo. But what we saw last year, for example, in the world in WHO's World Health Assembly, um, which is where all member states come together and vote on various priorities of, of WHO, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic in the WHA, the assembly. The, the, the member states spent over two days going, you know, to the wire up till midnight every day, fighting over the inclusion of the terms comprehensive sexuality education and gender identity in the HIV and STI strategy, with the result that when it came to a vote, 120 countries, in other words, a majority of the world's countries, walked out of the room rather than vote for the passing of the HIV strategy because of the inclusion of language. Now that, you know, that doesn't happen by chance. As, as Raywin has said, this is an orchestrated pushback and it is using the language of decolonization, of right. anti-imperialism. So we really need to get our houses together and in order to have our own coordinated pushback. Yeah. So, well, I guess on that then, how... Given that it seems there's a sort of even more of an urgency to this, given this kind of political context, is how do we go forward from here to create a stronger shared agenda that is both, you know, feminist, anti-colonial, as well as kind of cognizant of the other structures as well um, for justice and equity? Any thoughts? <laughs> Who wants to take that one first? Um, Asha? Yeah, I had two thoughts. Um, one, I, you know, it's been such a lovely conversation. Um, I think there's also, a, um, you know, Sarah's absolutely right. A lot of the multilateral spaces where this was, there's WHO, there's the Commission on the Status of Women, CSW. Many of these are now non-functional intergovernmental spaces or multilateral spaces. Um and I think there's a broad, yes, there's been this mobilization, but I also think there's been this problematic seeding of space. Um, not S-E-E-D, but C-E-D, mm-hmm. you know, um, moving away from the uh, political mobilization we needed to do. It was almost like after the 1990s, those in gender and health, you know, turned into a kind of... I this is my opinion, a technical field. And we we depoliticized our work. Um, and um, we have huge amounts of funding. And yet we've, we're not engaging with the politics of transformation. Um, and that that is, we need to really profoundly rethink how we work in gender and health. Um, because it's almost like a parallel universe. Um, that has, you know, let these spaces be taken over by the far right. 
um, and I, I, that, that that's really problematic. So it's it's not just that the right has taken over. We need to look, as Sarah said, at our own house as to how that happened. And, you know, Women Deliver is a good example of that, of how millions of dollars is invested. And not just Women Deliver, but several global initiatives to advocate for gender and health, that is, but in a very depoliticized way. And, and I think Maliha Khan is an amazing leader and uh, there's a lot of potential for bringing back the politics into how we advocate for change. S- Sarah, were you going to? Yeah, I, just just following on um, briefly from 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 Asha, that I think um, you know you asked at the beginning about methodologies, and I'm given that. I do wear an academic hat at least half the week. I'm going to bring in a framework, and the framework that um, that I usually operate by is the advocacy coalition framework, because what that says is that it it can't just be academia that changes things. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, we're the people who who have ideas and analyze and collect data or come up with frameworks and theories or tell histories. But change happens through the 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 the, the work of of um, advocates and activists as well as political elites. So it's not just about getting our message to you know. There's a whole field in academia of how to get your message, your evidence into policy, and generally that sees a one way direction of of of, of knowledge that's about reaching out to policymakers. But I would really strongly argue that the people we really should be reaching out to are the advocacy and activist groups. And not, not I'm going to um, suggest not that we bring them to our table, but we take off our shoes and go to their table. Because it certainly, you know, where where we're seeing the pushback from our side is not in academia, it's in the activist and advocacy groups. And we need to join hands with them if mm-hmm. we're going to see the kind of positive change that, that we all agree on. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sarah. And um, Raywin, coming to you as well, do you have a sense of... of- how we go forward from here. I think you sh- shared some ideas mm-hmm. earlier, but is there anything you want to to build on? Oh, well, I, yes, I, I um, try to generalise what I was saying before uh, a bit by suggesting that the, the kinds of theories we currently have uh, about uh, knowledge and, and research, uh, that is anti-colonial theories about, about knowledge, are mostly at a fairly high level of abstraction. And uh, that, that may be one reason why they've been easily enough co-opted for anti-democratic purposes, although their, their intention was, was, was democratic. So I think that it is incumbent on, on people who are working with ideas uh, in academia and outside academia uh, that we need theory that's that's relevant to action on uh, at the coal face. Um, that's relevant, especially to organising. Uh, you know, whether in professional contexts or in in popular contexts. Uh, that's that's where you know power that can be 
uh, you, you know, opposed to the quite powerful and, and wealthy resources of the anti-gender and, and, you know, misogynist politics that we're seeing now. That's where, uh, you know, strength for response can, can be gathered. Um, so I am, I am worried that, you know, the, uh, you know, decolonial ideas can become another box to be ticked. Um, and we, we can't ensure that things will, will be better than that. Uh, but we can work to produce more, more powerful analyses that are relevant to a more effective politics, which has to involve the mobilizing and, uh, of, of the groups who are currently mostly not there at the table at all. Um, so yeah, my, uh, my experience is, is mostly in the university world, and I tend to speak to, to university people much of the time, and I say, you know, be inventive, be bold, um, be perfectly happy about having a utopian dimension in, in our thinking about gender, and our thinking about gender and health too. Think of good futures as well as the horrible present. <laughs> Um, but be prepared for a lot of hard slog too. This is not easy stuff to work on uh, at all, but, but it is a place where things can happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to thank our guests for joining us for this fascinating discussion. Um, if you've enjoyed it too, do take a listen to the other episodes in the series where we'll be exploring the impact of colonialism on health and medicine, why we need to reckon with our past in order to move forward, the way in which colonisation has affected research and what we, as an institution in this, should be doing with all the information we've learned. These episodes and a series of articles and viewpoints on this work are all available for free online. You can check them out at www.bmj.com forward slash decolonising health and we'll make sure we include a link in the show notes as well. If you'd like to add to the discussion, we'd really love to hear from you. Please get in touch by leaving a rapid response to one of the articles in the series. We hope you found this episode enlightening and thought-provoking and please do join us in figuring out what decolonisation means for you. We'll see you soon. Bye for now. <laughs>